So I'd ask you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we're taking a, a one-week hiatus from uh, our study of James. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> Let's hear God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word, his trustworthy word that is without error. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor is at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would add your blessing to the reading and preaching of your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I was in the Big Y yesterday on one of many trips that are usually that usually occur uh, surrounding holidays and holiday seasons when someone, I won't say who, uh, in my kitchen at home runs out of a particular ingredient and needs someone to go to the grocery store and get it. So there were multiple so uh, store trips yesterday, but one was uh, by myself and uh, as I went in for uh, spring onions and uh, packages of uh, shredded mozzarella, uh, both of which I had no idea how much I needed, so I bought oodles of it um, and uh, was told that uh, it was way too much, but we can freeze it safely. So, As I was there in the Big Y uh, uh, lane, knowing that Big Y is owned by a Jewish family, the DeMore family, or at least it was, I believe it still is, um, and and over the loudspeakers came Noel Noel, and it's a wonderful uh, Christmas hymn, which uh, is delightfully reflective of biblical truth. It says at the very end, depends upon what uh, what verse you or or what version you're singing, but it says at the end, then let us all with one accord sing praises to our heavenly Lord that hath made heaven and earth of naught, and with his blood mankind hath bought. Uh, it's an extraordinary statement, and there in the hub, in, in the hubbub of a very busy grocery store that few are are brave enough to enter in the last moment on uh, the night before Christmas Eve, uh, those verses were sung as it spoke of the same uh, Christmas hymn, as it spoke of the shepherds who saw the light uh, or the star and 
before whom the angels appeared. And it was extraordinary to me to think just the the inurement of humanity is so many simply ignored what was going over this loudspeakers and yet to me it thrilled my soul uh, it was a thrill to my soul to hear that god has regarded my helpless estate as mary would say well we are in the christmas season and this is a passage about christmas hope as it were the hope of the world not reduced to the triviality of what is often practiced or passed off as christmas celebration as people got lots and lots of food and listened to all sorts of songs, along with Mariah Carey came along this song sung by choirs and mixed in all of it is the latest uh, of, of various forms of uh, Christmas songs and celebrations. Well, Christmas is ultimately about God's provision of a savior. And on this day, we celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this news had been spoken of since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It was long ago recorded uh, and planned out by God in his eternal decree before time began or before anything in this world and the universe was made. God the Father and God the Son entered into the covenant of redemption whereby the Son proclaimed that he would, in response to the Father's calling, that he would die for the sake of sinners and be a savior for the, those who are guilty and lost in their sins. Well, in the course of time, God had revealed his plan of salvation, the crushing of the head of the seed of the serpent uh, by the seed of the woman. And now here is this passage written to and through Isaiah uh, to proclaimed to uh, the people of Israel who were harassed and who were harangued by uh, the Assyrian troops arrayed all around them, whose emissaries had come and told them that they would most surely die. The year is about 733 BC. Uh, 722, for those of you who are biblical scholars and uh, historians, you know in 722 uh, that in fact the Northern Kingdom will fall. The Assyrians will uh, subjugate them, carry them off, uh, and yet that campaign has already begun. There is a campaign of oppression and threats made against these northern territories. You'll remember that during uh, following the death of Solomon, uh, in fact, as king of Israel, that he himself, uh, that, that his son, uh, Jeroboam, had come seeking relief from some of the oppression uh, of <clears throat> Uh, or, uh, Rehoboam had sat upon the throne. Jeroboam comes to Rehoboam with the intention of seeking relief from the taxation and the obligations uh, that Solomon had laid upon this people. And uh, and from that point forward, receiving harsh words, had determined that they would he would divide the kingdom. Taking ten tribes, they begin a place of worship in Samaria, uh, presenting an alternative to the worship of God in Judah. And it seems if you're a student of the history of Israel at that point, it seems almost every single king, almost every single king walks in ungodliness. It was not a wise thing for them to do. It was a foolish thing for them to have separated themselves. And yet it was according to God's plan. And king after king causes them to walk in ungodliness. King after king presents alternatives, ultimately leading to the most wicked form of 
idolatry, the worship of Baal, and eventually God hands them over to the destroyer. Assyria is an instrument of punishment by the by the offended holy God. And in 722, they are brought into slavery and they are destroyed as a nation. But it's 733, it's 11 years beforehand, and God's people are suffering immensely. They are suffering and they are in a position of deep darkness. It's the date, uh, 11 years before the fall of that kingdom, and they feel already the oppression of the marauders, the Assyrians, who are threatening even before their very gates that he will destroy and they will take them and God will not protect them in that last day. The first four verses of our passage this morning describe the carnage of a a lopsided battle. But in the midst of all of it, there is hope. And that's the first point of my sermon this morning. The carnage of a very lopsided battle, people walking in darkness, who will see ultimately, hopefully, at a later point, a great light. That there's a lopsided battle, and it's, it's between God and the cosmic force of his own power versus the enemies of God's people who have harmed his sheep. It's a period of suffering that's come, and the condition of the people is such that there is humiliation and darkness and a lack of understanding. It's not just simply that the Assyrians stand before their gates and talk with their upraised fist and promote their destruction, but the fact is they have a lack of understanding. The most, the deepest darkness in which they dwell is that they are lost and they are engaged in idolatry and God has cast them off. That they might be saved. There's a painful questioning. There is death. There is enslavement. There is a deep spiritual darkness. There's no escaping. The language that Isaiah uses is that of a mind clouded and unable to see God. A mind separated from God. A people oppressed by their own sins. A people so oppressed by their own sins that they are walking in darkness. Imagine what that state looks like. People who have no concept of God, who feel that there is a God that they desire or long for, but they cannot reach. Walk in darkness. Even though they might search, they cannot see. Even though they might hear, they cannot hear. There is no message of hope. There is no one to proclaim the everlasting salvation of those who would come in faith to the Savior. They walk in darkness. Have you ever walked in true and genuine darkness? One time, many years ago, we went into a... Uh, there's some fascination part of my family with dark and deep places. So we went down into some cavern of some kind. I forget exactly where it was. I think it was Rock City uh, down in, in Tennessee. And uh, they brought us down in this shaft. And we were many levels of, uh, I don't know, many, many hundreds of feet below the earth. And... At one point, there, there are, there's a walkway. You walk down to Ruby Falls and you walk back out. But there are lights uh, lighting the path all the way. And at some point, they say, now we're going to shut the lights off, which I don't think is a very bright idea, but they do. And they shut those lights off and say, now just don't move. Everyone stay where you're at. You're safe. No one's going to jump you. But, but, but then put your hand in front of your face and see if you can see it. And, of course, I did that and you couldn't see anything. I was hoping for some, some reflection of some kind. There wasn't anything. Uh, there was no light whatsoever when they shut out the electrical power down. 
in that deep, dark cavern. And some of us have camped out or been in places where there was deep darkness and there was no, no light whatsoever. The spiritual state of Israel at that point was such that there was no light of hope for them of any kind. They were lost. They were lost. They had lost sight of God. They had lost any hope that they might have that God would be merciful to them. They knew themselves to be utterly and completely lost. And there was no hope for them save God alone could rescue them. And Isaiah says that there is a light that will break out. Despite that period of suffering, that a light will come. Now think about that. The light of which he speaks of that child who will come. That light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom John 1 has read earlier, is the light of the world. That won't come for 700 years. Jesus will not walk upon the face of the earth until 700 years in the future. But he is the light for all who believed, whether they believed before he came or after he came. Christ alone is the hope of all those who have placed their hope in God and in his Messiah. Well, the light breaks out through the thick darkness and joy breaks forth. Victory is won and the spoil of the victor is shared with those redeemed from their oppressors. I think Isaiah is saying to us this morning that there is something far more oppressive than simply Assyrians at the gate. There is something far more oppressive than simply having an enemy before us who is going to triumph over us in, in, his, in his victory and our defeat. They face the threat of the Assyrians, but what seems worse, as Isaiah proclaims it as prophecy from God, is that their darkness is of a spiritual nature. They're lost and in darkness. One can lose one's life, but if one has faith in Christ, one has life and hope. But without Christ, there is no hope. There's only darkness, emptiness, loss, a darkness that is palpable, a darkness that is so thick that you cannot see through it and may not even understand your own need. Well, in that darkness, thinking that you are in a bright and happy place, but you're in fact in a state of complete and utter darkness and without hope in this world. Well, into that darkness breaks glorious promise of hope. Victory is won and the spoil is shared and Christ is the one who is promised, the one who will come. The after effects include the destruction of weapons for warfare, Warrior boots are used for fuel. Bloodied garments are thrown into the fire. You see what it says there. The light comes in and you shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. Later on, you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. Every boot of the booted warrior in the battle, tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning and fuel for the fire. Imagine if you would for a moment victory after a great warfare. When in utter darkness and out in the midst of great warfare, victory is finally won and snatched from the jaws of defeat. And what one held to be absolutely essential in welfare in warfare is cast aside. Swords are beat into plowshares and as Isaiah says at a later point, 
and the boots of warfare and bloodied clothing is all cast aside. It's fuel for fire. Because now they are safe. Victory has been won. Well, <clears throat> darkness, deep darkness is currently the state. And the present situation for Israel and its immediate future are synonymous with and a metaphor for the spiritual condition of, of the world prior to a work of grace. Superstition and materialism, idolatry and arrogance, leadership failure, social disintegration, sensuality, alcoholism, cultic prostitution, child sacrifice to Moloch, Ammonite gods, King Ahaz doing that himself, Zebulun and Naphtali, two northernmost kingdoms or tribes already suffering the onslaught of Assyria, villages destroyed, people taken away, darkness. All of this has been described in the opening chapters of Isaiah. All of these things. You, you'd think he was describing our culture. Alcoholism, idolatry, arrogance, leadership failure, social disintegration, superstition, materialism. That's us. Is that not, therefore, a state of darkness? Is that not a horrible state of darkness and the onslaught, onslaught of ungodliness? All of this is merely a metaphor for spiritual darkness. In the midst of all of that, there is joy in verse 3. Where does it come from? How, does it, how is it realized? This is the response of sinners saved by grace. This is the reason for the season in that trite phrase. So often our lives are bereft of joy. Some of us struggle with our natural dispositions, anxieties, fears, depression. Our hearts are broken. We've experienced loss. The losses and crosses of the Christian life seem so to oppress so deeply. Yet God has promised that you and I will experience unspeakable and everlasting joy. And this is realized through this one. This one whom we will speak of in a moment. This child who will be born to us a son who will be given to us. The zeal of the Lord will of, of hosts will accomplish this. God is powerfully and enthusiastically doing this he is bringing it all to completion and he will carry it out it's a helpful rebuke i think this passage when it shows us that people who walk in darkness who are in the midst of great spiritual oppression and in darkness will see this great light worked by god's own zealous and enthusiastic hand gladness in the very presence of god We tend to seek our joy in our possessions. We seek our joy in our relationships, our, our circumstances, in persons, in organizations, in money and physical gratification. But the believer has a light shined into our lives and we recognize that our hope, our life, the light of mankind is found in the Lord, the God of hosts. He is our joy. He is our, our joy in all things. For all who have received salvation, and the forgiveness of sins and mercy and pardon, our joy is in the Lord. Our joy is in the Lord. This is something that we need to sing and, 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 and adapt uh, adopt as a mantra throughout our days. Our joy is in the Lord. My joy is not in you. My joy is not in mankind. My joy is superficially or secondarily in you, but it is ultimately in God and in what God is doing. 
and the work of God that is at work in you. Our joy is in the Lord. Our joy may come through secondary means, but nonetheless, our joy is in the Lord. Our joy is the Lord. Our joy is to know the the resurrection of Christ for the sake of sinners. Our joy is, is to know and walk in relationship with God. Our joy is in knowing that he is our father. Christ is our wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father and prince of peace. And this is the hope that we have. And it's likened in two different ways in what Isaiah here says. It's likened to men who experience great victory after warfare, whose clothes have been bloodied with warfare itself, and whose boots are covered over with the muck of war, and who have been engaged in that warfare, and who now cast it off into the fire, recognizing they are no longer needed. Warfare has come to an end, and light of victory has come. It's likened also to a farmer after a very great harvest who must harvest through all the vagaries of wind when wind is not needed, uh, rain that comes when the fields are already saturated, rain that will not come when the fields are very dry, and yet at the end of the season rejoices in God because he has mercifully wrought a wonderful harvest. At the end of that harvest, when all the corn or wheat or barley has been taken in, he then breathes and give thanks, gives thanks to God. That is the spirit of those who have experienced Christ and salvation, being filled with gladness, who will rejoice over God's provision. What is that hope? We need an explanation of that hope. And that's my second portion of this passage this morning. God has broken the weapons and the ability of the enemy to inflict pain or to kill it seems not only have their swords and plowshares and uh, it, it, or swords and and uh, and bloodied robes and boots made for warfare, not only theirs as Israel have been cast into the fire, but so too have the ungodly persons who have opposed them. God has broken the weapons and the ability of the enemy to destroy and to harm. And it's like that great victory at Midian in verse four, the rod of their. Pre- For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor is at the battle of Midian. You remember that battle? Joshua, not Joshua, pardon me, Gideon. Gideon was was commanded to go and and to gather the people of Israel. He gathers something like 32,000, might be 23,000, but 32,000. They're all farmers with plowshares. They have barely anything to wage warfare. They're weak as it is, and God says to Gideon, after Gideon has already put out a fleece and said, let it be dry and all the ground around it be wet. And then the next morning, Lord, one more time, let it be wet and all the ground around it be dry. And God did that as a sign that he would be with him. And so he goes and he gathers the people. And then God says, send all of them down to the water and have them lean down or, or tell them to get a drink. And all those who kneel and uh, are the only ones that I want in this battle. Those who lean down with their face to the water, tell them to go home. So then he's left with 300 men, and God says, these are the ones. These are the ones I want you to go into battle with. Now, this is what you're going to do. You're going to take a little bit of fire, and you're going to put it inside of a clay jar and scream at the top of your lungs while you surround the enemy. And that's it. The battle is the Lord's. The Lord will bring this about. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will bring this. 
to completion. And that's exactly what happened. The Midianites are there and they are in such a confusion. They see all the lights and the screaming voices and they begin killing themselves and they annihilate each other. So all Israel can do at the end of the day is say, the Lord has done this. What about salvation itself? What about relief from our sins? Can any of us say, look what I have done? It's not the only response of God's people ever and continually and always eternally. Lord, look what you have done. Lord, you are the one. The Lord, the Lord of hosts, his zeal has accomplished this. We can never stand before God and say, look, this is a summation of all that I have done to deserve it. To bring this about, the salvation of my soul, the relief from darkness. No, we cannot do that. The zeal of hosts, the zeal of the Lord of hosts alone can accomplish our salvation. It's like that battle. God will do it. You cannot. God will do it. The infinite, holy God who has made all things, who spoke and all things came into being. The, the only holy God who has existed for all eternity and beyond, beyond any concept of time, who is alone the most powerful being in this world. And we have seen and we have known this to be true. We know in our heart of hearts that there is no explanation for our world, that if we trace it back by man's machinations, we eventually arrive at some force, some something that got everything started. I'm here to tell you that that is the living God. The Lord of hosts. God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And he calls you into relationship with himself this very day. Christ has come into the world to save sinners. And so in verse 5 he arrives, arrives at this fact that there is an end to all hostility. If in fact you are in Christ today... Any hostility that God may have had against you, any case against you as a guilty sinner, is ended. There is no more hostility for you. There is, there is only enduring and perpetual and unfailing love. The truth is, every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. It is an end to battle. It is an end to warfare. All the powers and principalities and dark places cannot touch you ultimately. They cannot touch your soul nor take away the everlasting salvation that has been given to you. For one specific reason. Because the government is upon his shoulders. Because Christ has all authority unto himself. Because he is our savior. Verses 6 and 7, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. <clears throat> this is the one. This is the means. He is the one through whom this will be accomplished. He will do it. There are many, many Old Testament passages used and reflected in the passage before us. We don't have time to go into all of them. Let me at least go through these names. He is Wonderful Counselor. He is the Wonderful Counselor. 1 Corinthians 1.30, the Word of God tells us, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and by his knowledge he will justify many. He knows our plight. He knows how to save sinners. 
He's not ignorant of what you need. He's not ignorant of your darkened condition. He's not in any way ignorant of what you most need in being reconciled before God. He is the righteous branch. He is he reigns as king, acts wisely, and he does justice and righteousness in all the land. He is wonderful. He is a wonderful counselor. Wonderful is a word that speaks of wonderment and uh, over his deity and the awe that comes in beholding him by faith. He's able to enable and to give strength. There is no situation or difficulty or, or pain that he doesn't understand. He knows you. He knows what your deepest needs are right now. And he understands you and what you need better than you do yourself. He will counsel you. He is wise and good, merciful and kind. He will not embarrass you nor shame you. He gives wisdom to those who ask, and he gives without reproach. He is a wise and wonderful counselor. He is also mighty God. El Gabor is the passage. He does not come up short or disappoint. He was in the beginning. He was in the beginning. He was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He is the Christ according to the flesh. He has appeared. He is the great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. <clears throat> Hebrews 1.8 says, Of the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. He is the everlasting Father. There's no confusion here between persons, a sort of modalism. He is the one God who acts in different ways or different modes at any given time. But this is an emphasis on his eternality. He is the Son of God. He is ancient, and he deals with his people like a father, paternally providing for protecting and keeping us. I recently had someone explain to me that it's hard for them to understand the concept of God because they had a father, a physical, biological father, who deeply disappointed them and harmed them. I understand that. My sympathies are with you and for you. Your father disappointed you, but your heavenly father will not. And the ancient one, whose ways are wonderful and wise and good, the eternal father of all his children, as it were, the wise and ancient being who paternally cares for all those who have been given to him and for whom he died. He himself will care for you and will not neglect you. His way is great, and he is the one who is our peace. He is the author of our peace that we have with God, and that is uh, the next name, Prince of Peace. Peace I leave with you, he says to his disciples in his last day. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you do I give, but do not let your hearts be troubled. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.14, he himself is our peace. He has come to reconcile all things to himself, having been made peace through the blood of his cross. He is our peace. Our sins have been forgiven. They have been washed away. And the darkness in which we once dwell, subject to God's justice and his condemnation, now has been removed. Our sins are washed away. Though they were red like scarlet, we now are white as snow. 
further, there is no end to his government, no end to his peace. Because of him, you're at peace with God. This is breathlessly wonderful news. There will never be a moment for those who are saved by grace through faith when God will not uh, will be opposed to them in such a position of judgment as, as he is against the ungodly. His rule is wise and just and righteous, unending. Only that power and purpose of God, that zeal, will complete this prophetic event. The Lord can accomplish this work of grace, and he is zealous and passionate for it. God of hosts is pushing history toward the final consummation and triumph of grace in the messianic kingdom of Christ. That's where we are heading to today. That is where history is taking us. And it says that the zeal of the Lord will do this. It's a cognate of, of an Arabic verb, to become intensely red. Now, maybe you've, you've seen this. Someone you love became intensely red-faced about something. That's what the word means. The zeal of the Lord has accomplished it. It's a word used of a husband's jealous love for his wife. It's love and desire and desire burning in the hearts of newlyweds. And Song of Solomon 8, 6, it's that same word. He stirs up his zeal, as it were, God does for your salvation. He stirs up his zeal for the glory of the eternal Son of God in the salvation of sin. Your zeal and your might, the stirring of your inner parts, Isaiah 63:15. He is a consuming fire, a jealous God, Hebrews tells us. Zeal for your house will consume me, John 2 says. Jesus recognizes and, and exclaims that that is about him himself. Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is a zealous and jealous Savior. Jesus zealously pursues your salvation and mine. Lastly, there are New Testament connections here in the passage before us in Isaiah. Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, it said this. When Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. And it goes on and shares verses 1 and 2 of our present chapter. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You heard the passage read by uh, Elder Josh earlier. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend. I'm here to proclaim to you this morning that the light of the world is Jesus Christ. The word of God proclaims that Jesus is the light and the life of believers. That he is the wonderful counselor. He is the prince of peace. He is the ancient and eternal father. He is the glorious Savior of all who come to him in faith. Because he is a mighty God, mighty unto salvation. And here at Christmas time, we remember that that little tiny baby born in the course of human history to a young virgin woman is in fact 
the coming of the eternal Son of God, the mighty Counselor, the Prince of Peace, mighty God, eternal Father, who is enrobed in human flesh for the salvation of saving us from our sins, for the, the, the good news that the light has come into this world that is filled with nothing but darkness. That is the gospel. That is Christmas. That is the hope that we have. And he himself is our great peace. May God add his blessing and may God renew the promises to you and to me and cause our hearts to expand in loving kindness and joy unto God. And may God expand within you a greater understanding of and may you see the light of God in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, our great Father, Son, Holy Spirit, wonderful and eternal God who has broken into our sinful condition, our darkened state, and into this dark world without hope. We ask, Lord, that you would grant us an increase of understanding, a greater zeal, a greater awareness of the light of Christ in our lives, a greater understanding of Christ as our wonderful counselor, a prince of peace, as the mighty God, Lord, grant us a greater understanding of him, he who is our, as it were, our, who acts toward us and works within us as an eternal father, paternally concerning himself with zeal for our concerns, for our needs. Oh, Lord God, we pray that you would bless in this season and cause the light of salvation to be revealed throughout this world. We pray for the Muslim hordes, for the unbelieving atheist, for the for the, the person who simply is all religious, as it were, who sh who disdains religion altogether, and yet who is deeply unhappy and eternal.